Have you ever said something with great confidence, only later to be shown that your intentions, as made up as your mind may have been, uh, did not turn out to be what you thought they were? Uh, in my own life, perhaps the clearest example of this was uh, thinking back to when I was a child. I remember very clearly uh, in my younger years before uh, hitting puberty, for example, when cooties was as real as COVID, uh, proclaiming to my family that I would never get married. I said it with boldness and conviction. Uh, and in, at that time, my mind was really made up. And of course, this just brought lots of laughter uh, from family members, and they said, yeah, you'll say that now, but we'll just see what happens later. And I said, no, really, I mean it. I won't ever do it. Of course, uh, over time, that didn't happen. Uh, I'm very happily married now and glad that the Lord changed my mind on that. Uh, well, I bring that up because in our text this morning, the disciples themselves make a very bold claim uh, that ends up uh, being a bit of a letdown when push comes to shove. Their uh, attitudes clearly change over a circumstance a number of uh, events that occur. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 52. Uh, Mark 14, 26 through 52. And if you're using one of the black Bibles underneath the chairs, you can find this morning's passage on page 851. That's 851. Uh, friends, it's no exaggeration to say that we have reached the most intense moment in Jesus's life so far in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark's Gospel is not lacking with excitement or tension at all. But we're 14 chapters in, and as we've gradually worked through the book, just as Mark's original audience would have done in the church in Rome, we see how Jesus' whole life points to the events that occur in our text this morning. Our text will begin with the disciples singing a hymn and departing to the Mount of Olives, and if you look up further in the chapter, you'll see uh, what we covered in previous weeks, that Jesus and company, they've just finished up the Passover meal, uh, which he used to portray himself as the Passover lamb, whose blood is the blood of the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31. And Jesus interrupts the normal uh, conclusion of the supper by holding, withholding the final cup and instead promising that he would not drink of it until with them in the kingdom of God. The, t the dinner is typically closed by singing psalms, 115 to 118. So there's a good chance that Jesus and his disciples recited the same psalm that we read in our scripture reading this morning, just hours before his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where our story picks up uh, this morning. Let's read our passage together now. Mark 14, 26 through 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. 
And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now but the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Our passage is longer than normal, and yet it still ends on a cliffhanger. But because there's so much going on in these verses uh, that we need to examine, uh, I've broken it off here before continuing further in the narrative. Here we see many major themes that can be found throughout the book of Mark in one place at one time. So, for example, we have the absolute sovereign plan of God determining what happens. We have Jesus' divine awareness of that plan. And while he knows what's going to happen in his humanity, he's in agony as he anticipates it. And he even prays that God will remove it from him. You also have the theme of radical discipleship, in which Jesus remains faithful to the will of the Father, and the disciples utterly fail him, uh, perhaps even to their own surprise. But make no mistake, uh, none of this was a surprise to Jesus. All these things are recorded for our benefit. So with that in mind, uh, let's think now about uh, what's going on in this passage. Uh, structurally, uh, you may be familiar with uh, what I have called in the past and what scholars refer to as a Markin sandwich. Uh, this is just a literary technique that Mark uses multiple times in his book in which he introduces something, uh, then shifts the story, tells a story uh, related to it, and then concludes back with where, what he started on the subject. So it's kind of a, a sandwich with the bread on the outsides and the meat on the inside. Uh, a clear example of this is in chapter 11, 
Jesus curses a fig tree because it's not producing any figs, though it appears so. Then uh, Mark tells a story of going in and cleansing the temple, and then uh, they pass the fig tree again, and he teaches about it. And we see in that instance how uh, the fig tree and the temple relate to one another because both give the appearance uh, of something, and yet on the inside there is corruption. Uh, The fig tree was not producing figs, though it was in leaf, and the temple was supposed to be a house of worship but was turned into a den of robbers. Well, that's kind of like what's going on in this passage. If you're using an ESV, uh, the verses I've selected are broken into four paragraphs, so that's just mainly because people don't know what to do with the last two verses. Uh, People are just not sure. It's perplexed a lot of people. What is the point of these details? It's only in Mark. Why mention this guy who runs away naked? Uh, But I think, though it's an odd detail, I think it actually goes with the previous paragraph. And so uh, turning it into three paragraphs, if you could just pretend that, that would make verses 26 through 31 and then 42 through 52 the bread of the sandwich and then 32 through 42 being the meat. Uh, In a nutshell, Jesus predicts the disciples falling away in the first paragraph and then you have Jesus praying in the garden while his disciples can't even stay awake. And then the actual arrest and betrayal of Jesus where the disciples do actually then scatter. So you have the sheep being scattered on the outside. In the middle, we have this amazing example of contrast between the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithlessness of his disciples. So those are my structural comments. I hope that helps you understand what's going on in the passage. If you want to know what the main idea is in this text, I would phrase it this way. The main idea is that Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God for sinners as only Jesus could. Therefore, we must trust in him and not ourselves. Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God for sinners as only Jesus could. Therefore, we must trust in him and not ourselves. My prayer is that these verses will increase our humility and our confidence in Jesus' righteousness alone. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is a misplaced confidence. A misplaced confidence confidence in verses 26 through 31. So Jesus makes another shocking prediction. He had done this during the dinner. During the Passover dinner, he said that one of them would betray him, and that shocked them quite a bit. They all questioned themselves and asked Jesus if it was them that would betray him. Well, this time, Jesus takes aim not only at Judas individually, but the whole group with a very sorrowful prediction. He says in verse 27, you will all fall away. Every one of you. And just think for a moment about the life of the disciples who would have heard him say these things. Uh, Many of them he found early on in his ministry. Uh, Many of them he simply called and they followed. Uh, From that point on, they've been with Jesus through everything. So they've seen him do amazing things. The kind of power that Jesus had displayed in front of them would be enough to make them uh, confident that nothing could ever go wrong so long as they were with him. Uh, That's even what he told them in the boat, isn't it? Jesus heals or or calms the wind and the waves. They're terrified, fearing for their lives. And what does he say to them? He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Uh, They've been around Jesus in the temple, going head-to-head with other religious authorities uh, who didn't stand a chance against him. Uh, They watched him walk on water and heal the blind. 
Jesus even sent out the disciples in chapter 6 to proclaim the message of the gospel, to cast out demons and to heal people, which they did. They come back and talk about it. So they themselves have even been given authority by him to do amazing things. And just imagine that kind of confidence that would come with being a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of the man that the demons called the Holy One of God. And then following the son of David into the royal city, afraid and amazed about what would happen when they reached their destination. And now Jesus says that they're all going to fall away. It's a sorry moment in the life of our Savior, uh, but it was not unplanned. Jesus himself provides a proof text for this divine plan. In verse 27, he says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So where is that written, you might be asking? Well, I'll just tell you. Uh, Jesus is quoting a minor prophet, Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. It's a prophecy in which God's shepherd is struck in order to cleanse the people of their unrighteousness. And Jesus applies that directly to himself, inadvertently giving himself the title as God's shepherd who is at God's right hand in Zechariah 13, and describing then the way that his disciples would be scattered. But that's not the only thing he says. In verse 28, he says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, making it clear that he will be raised after being struck. It's a very clear prediction about his own resurrection, which, of course, the disciples are just too nearsighted to see. They're still in shock as they contemplated his words about them failing him. One interesting note to make about Jesus' prediction here is that he specifically says, when he's raised up, he's going to go before them to Galilee. Uh, it's just a remarkably specific thing to say. And of course, that's exactly what happens. That's what Jesus does. But it's also just another reminder that Jesus' goal was not to overthrow Rome or to be a revolutionary. Uh, he says in the Gospel of John, my kingdom is not of this world. Even here in these predictions, it's clear that Jesus had his mission in mind, which was not to set up a new political authority or to take over land, but to give his life as a ransom for many. His very mission was to be struck instead of the sheep in order to save them. Uh, dear friends, the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. Uh, we are the sheep, all of whom have gone astray in our sin following the course of this world, but in his mercy and his love, he sent Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Luther calls the sweet exchange. Our sin is placed on him on the cross and his righteousness covers us. Now, the gospel of salvation was not a later development by Jesus' followers. It was the very plan of God from the beginning, which Jesus obeyed perfectly each step of the way. Now perhaps you feel like a sheep in this world. Uh, wandering, without purpose. Uh, friend, if that's you, know that Jesus had compassion on the people because they looked like sheep without a shepherd to him. Uh, that's why he calls all people everywhere to turn from their sin. That's what repent means, just simply turn, like 180 degrees, and go to Jesus instead and submit your life to him as king. God sent his son so that whoever believed in him would be saved. And if you believe that message to be true in your heart, but you've never confessed it with your mouth, then, friend, consider doing that today. 
If you have questions about what that might look like for you uh, or what it, what it means more, then uh, please talk to me afterwards at the door. I would love to talk more with you about that. So how can we apply this first paragraph to our lives? A few points of application for you. First, don't be deceived into thinking Christ's love for you changes because of your sin. Christ knew exactly what Peter and the other disciples would do, despite their objections and their best intentions to him. He loved them anyway, and it's true of us as well. Romans 5.8 says it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us, and not when we cleaned up our lives that he then decided to save us. No, he knows the very depths of our hearts better than we do. His relationship with his disciples is the perfect example of this. They will all fall away, but he will meet them again in Galilee. They will be redeemed. Uh, for For some reason, we're all tempted to think that Christ loves us less because of our sin. Uh, Whether that's a a, a deep sin from our past or a reoccurring one, for whatever reason, that we we tend to have that struggle. We say that we believe in uh, grace by faith alone, and yet... Uh, when we fall to temptation and sin, we become functional legalists in our minds. But the gospel wouldn't really be good news if that was the case because none of us are perfect. Friends, when you're tempted to believe these lies, remember that Christ predicted his own disciples falling away before, and, and denying him before he died for them. Second point of application, don't be a nearsighted Christian. Be a far-sighted Christian. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I mentioned the clear reference to the resurrection, and yet the disciples are so preoccupied with the immediate that they're just totally unaware of the ultimate victory that is Christ's. We live in an already not yet world in which Christ has risen and promised his return. He's given us the Spirit as a sign and as a promise to his return. And yet we get discouraged when Friends walk away from the faith when culture appears to be sliding further and further away from Christianity. Uh, Perhaps our churches even shrink in size, and we question whether or not we're on the right side of things. Uh, Friends, the road to heaven has always been narrow and difficult for those who follow it. Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Christians have always been a minority. But that doesn't make the Bible any less true. Jesus said that against his church, the gates of Hades will not prevail. So beware of spiritual amnesia, in which you forget all of God's promises to you when your circumstances change. He promises to complete the work he's begun in you, and he will. And that's why we need to remind ourselves and each other of God's promises regularly. That's why we rehearse the gospel each week because we forget God's promises regularly. That's why we sing the kinds of songs that we do. Uh, Some of them are older, some of them are more wordy than uh, what what, uh, is listed as the top ten evangelical songs that you can look up. Uh, But it's because they remind us of the truths that God has spoken to us in his word. Third point of application from this paragraph. Bear with each other's failings as Christ bears with ours. Do you find it hard to love weak sheep? Do you find it difficult to forgive someone close when they hurt you? How much more patient is Jesus 
with us? How much more patient is he when he forgives his closest followers for abandoning him in his hour of need? He's the ultimate example of loving beyond our failures. Therefore, we should try to reflect his heart towards each other and other brothers and sisters in Christ as well. It's not easy to love sinners at times. Uh, It could be a challenge. But we follow our Savior in doing it. Uh, Fourth point of application, never overestimate your strength and never underestimate your sin. Uh, Never overestimate your strength and never underestimate your sin. In short, uh, if you want the quicker way to write it, less wordy, have humility. Beware of having a misplaced confidence in yourself like the disciples do here. Uh, There are many people who uh, say that they are willing to do extreme things for God. They're willing to lay their lives down uh, for their spouse, for example. Uh, But they have trouble forgiving them when they have a simple argument. Many people say that they will do extreme things for God, uh, but they can't stop visiting an explicit website. Uh, Many say they strive to be Christ-like, but they're unwilling to forgive others that hurt them. We could be quick to criticize others' methods of evangelism when we are poor practitioners ourselves. Uh, Friends, humility protects you from overestimating your strengths and underestimating your weaknesses. It protects from pride, which deceives us into thinking that we are more godly than we actually are. Point one is a misplaced confidence. Point two is a moving prayer. A moving prayer in verses 32 through 42. Uh, So Jesus and company, they arrive at a place called Gethsemane, which is just a, a garden. It's a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus leaves the group, taking with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, This happens to be the same three disciples that went with him up the Mount of Transfiguration in uh, chapter 9 to behold his glory. And in this passage, we get a window into the humanity of Jesus. Uh, We see him at his weakest point in his life. Weaker ever even than when tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days. Uh, The text says in verses 33 through 36... And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, The cup he talks about in verse 36 is equal to this hour. Uh, What he's referring to when he asks that the hour will pass is that the cup will pass, and what he's referring to is his own death, uh, his his own uh, punishment as he is struck by God. When Jesus talks about removing the cup, uh, you might be tempted to think, as some skeptics do, I don't know if you've heard anyone say something like this, but I have, uh, you know, what's the big deal? Jesus knows that he's going to resurrect. Uh, Jesus knows he's going to have victory on the other side. He's guaranteed it. Why all the distress? And not only that, but we see other people who are martyred for their faith, even in the Bible. Think about Stephen, filled with the Spirit, who as he is being stoned, uh, prays that God would forgive those who are stoning him. You know, if Stephen could face death like that, then why couldn't Jesus? 
And friends, the reason is because Jesus was facing much more than merely physical death. As brutal as Roman crucifixion was, which we'll find out in the coming weeks as we get there, uh, it, it was the most, and probably is still today, one of the most uh, brutal ways, severe ways to kill someone. Uh, the Romans were experts on keeping someone alive pretty much as long as possible while tearing apart their bodies. But even still, what Jesus faced on the cross was far more than the physical wounds of his body. What Jesus faced before him was the very wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of humanity. Everything we know about Christ points him to being our substitute, not our example. Meaning his blood was poured out on our behalf. He bore our griefs and sorrows, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, as it says in Isaiah. Dear friends, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't wish for anyone to experience the punishment that I deserve for my sins. Uh, yet Jesus took upon himself the sins of everyone in the world who would uh, come to be saved by his substitutionary death. Uh, death is terrifying. I think any man would be rightfully fearful, knowing crucifixion was coming. But I'm convinced Jesus' fear here was not only punishment of the Romans, but the punishment of God himself. Uh, why? Because the Bible is clear that God is the one who hands Jesus over. God is the one who strikes the shepherd. Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him in order to make many righteous. The judgment for the sins of the world is given by God alone and no one else. Therefore, it's the judgment of God that Jesus experiences on the cross. It's the isolation and separation from the fellowship of God that Jesus goes through. He is forsaken which is why he quotes Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you go back to read Zechariah 13, at some point you'll see that it's God who strikes the shepherd at his right hand as well. And so, beloved, with that in mind, imagine the temptation Jesus must have faced to shirk from his mission. What Jesus experienced in the garden was pure agony. It reveals perhaps the greatest example of Jesus' weakness as a man and yet his great obedience despite it. Contrast that with the disciples who can't stay awake. Three times they fall asleep, and Jesus chastises them for it. But notice what it says in verse 40. Their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. That's a small picture of what will happen when all people are before Jesus on judgment day at the end of time. Our sins are laid in front and without Christ, we have nothing to say before him. Mouths will be closed. Now, that's why we cling to Jesus as our only boast, our only hope. But I want you to see what Jesus does in the face of this great temptation. And in light of his own weakness of flesh, he prays. He prays. And he prays an incredibly honest and vulnerable prayer that God would remove the cup from him. Uh, that something or anything could be done that would allow Jesus not to go through with what was written about him. But his desire to do God's will was greater than to do his own. So how can we apply these events to our lives? Uh, first, in times of great trouble, pour your heart out to God in prayer. In times of great trouble, pour out your heart to God in prayer. In times of weakness and temptation, pray. 
in times of great distress and comfort, pray. It's the greatest remedy to all of life's situations. It is both the least and the most that we can do. We also learn that it's okay to pray for something that God does not plan on doing, so long as we're willing to submit to his will if, if uh, he doesn't. So Jesus asks for what he desires because his desires are not sinful, but he recognizes that it may not be the Lord's will to give him those desires, and he's open to trusting the outcome. Uh, we should do the same when we pray. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to ask for something that your heart earnestly desires. Uh, if you don't ask for the things that you really want because you're afraid to pray for something that's not God's will, then you might really not be sincere in your prayers. You might not actually be opening your heart up to him and being honest. But ask yourself if the thing that you want is sinful or coming from a place of misplaced entitlement. And if not, then ask the Lord. He wants, you, he wants to hear you voice the things that are on our hearts. And then the second thing we must do is trust that God's will for what we are praying is what's best. Whether or not it is what we want in that moment. Second point of application for you, keep watch and pray to avoid temptation. Uh, this instruction is given straight from Jesus to his disciples. Uh, and I think, I thought of this because I think that Christians today have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to fighting sin. Uh, that blind spot is that we assume that we can't avoid the fight. And sure, there may be times when you get ambushed, you know, and there's nothing you can do, and you have to kind of muscle your way, wrestle with the temptation, uh, certainly fight the good fight in that way. But I think I can say that I bet you could be more tactful in evading temptation. Uh, Christians today talk a lot about resisting temptation, which of course is necessary and takes much discipline. But look again at verse 38. Jesus says, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul wrestles with this, of course, as well. Uh, therefore, avoid temptation altogether. And the surest way to avoid defeat is to evade the battle. Third point of application, know your weaknesses. If you can't, fortif you can't fortify a castle if you don't know what the castle's weaknesses are. You can't avoid temptation if you don't know what things tempt you. So identify those things in your life. Are you easily overcome by anger? If so, when, where, why, what are the circumstances? How can they be avoided? Do you struggle to compare yourself with others? Consider a social media fast. Perhaps that's a weakness to watch for. Struggle with internet usage. Uh, then consider only using it as necessary for your employment or not at all, at least for a time. Know your weaknesses. Oh, that's a moving prayer in the garden. Point three, a Messiah betrayed. A Messiah betrayed. This is verses 43 through 52. The moment of his betrayal and arrest is the very hour that has been spoken out throughout the book. Uh, after hours of laboring in prayer and the threefold failure of his disciples, uh, which by the way I think is a preview of Peter's threefold denial of Christ that will come, Jesus says in verses 41 through 43, it's enough. The hour has come. 
the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, these are the three groups, by the way, that Jesus mentions specifically in chapter 831 when he gives his first uh, plain prediction about his death and resurrection. Peter, James, and John, they're supposed to be keeping watch, they're supposed to be praying, uh, but it doesn't seem to matter because Jesus knows exactly when his betrayer is coming around the corner, and it seems like he's still even speaking to his disciples when that happens. The mob comes to arrest him, and we don't know exactly how large this crowd is. Uh, people have their guesses. Uh, there would have been Roman soldiers as well as servants from the three parties mentioned, uh, most likely, it was small enough to not draw too much attention, but large enough to take Jesus by force if things uh, got out of hand. And it looks like they almost do, as one of his disciples cuts the ear off one of the servants. And we know from John's gospel that that's actually Peter who does that. And the servant himself is named in, in John's gospel. But no struggle breaks out. Jesus is calm, he's resolved. He knows exactly what they're there to do, and he's prepared to go with them willingly. Not out of respect for the religious authorities, but because of his obedience to the Father's plan. In Matthew's Gospel, he even mentions that he could call down legions of angels if he wanted to. But he goes uh, according to what was written of him. He'd been preparing for that moment. Notice the way he speaks to them in verse 48. Uh, he, he basically says... Why do you come at me with this great group and with clubs? You could have arrested me at any point. <laughs> I was with you in the temple for days, teaching in public. Jesus is basically saying, you know, did you expect me to lead a revolution against you? They are over-precautious, uh, but that clearly isn't Jesus' objective. And if it was, he probably would have seized the opportunity when he was inside the temple, for example, around the crowds who were amazed at his teaching, but he doesn't. Instead, this group comes at the foot of a mountain in a private garden under the cover of darkness to take him. And it just goes to show that the people's plot in vain while the Lord controls all things. Jesus is in charge of his own life, and he willingly lays it down for his people. Uh, Mark doesn't mention it, but, Jesus, but, but Luke, in his account of this event, uh, tells us that Jesus heals the man's ear, that Peter cut off. Even in his most dire moments, Jesus shows compassion to his enemies. Did you notice in the last section that only Judas and Jesus are named? It's kind of strange given that the names of the other people were known. Peter's not named, the servant's not, nor is the young man who runs away naked. I assume he was a follower, if not a disciple of Jesus as well. But Mark wants our attention to fall on the tragic betrayal of Jesus and the abandonment of his other disciples. Judas clearly leading them. When he comes around with the group of people, he says, he's given them a sign. He says, the one I kiss, take him. And uh, if that idea is new to you, uh, let me just explain briefly that this, this kind of kiss is not a romantic one, of course. It's one of endearment and friendship, uh, like what family members would give to each other. Uh, and the New Testament actually encourages Christians at various points to greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, this would have been something done only between 
members of the same gender as to not confuse for romantic feelings or anything like that. But the point is, it was a gesture simply to communicate equality and friendship. And that makes Judas one of the biggest backstabbers in history. And I think it probably only contributed to the agony that Jesus faced in the garden that night. In many ways, this whole section is summarized by Jesus' final words at the end of verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. That, that's the key, I think, that last line. And they all left him and fled. That's the key to understanding the details about the naked man who flees in verses 51 and 52. Uh, some people, just so you know this, uh, many people think that that's actually Mark, and that's his kind of way of writing himself into the narrative anonymously. Uh, that's just total speculation. We have no idea whether that's true or not. Uh, it could be. But I think these two verses, they're kind of like in a movie when the hero gets captured, and then there's a side character that doesn't, he's hiding in the shadows, and we all kind of know what's going to happen from that point on. We're nervous about the hero, but we know that side character, he's going to find a way to sneak behind enemy lines, release the hero, and turn the tide on the battle or something like that. But in Jesus' life, that kind of hope is just completely squashed. The lone, unnamed person following them flees, and Jesus is left all alone, abandoned. As Jesus said at the beginning of our passage, the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. It's not just the foreknowledge, but the very plan of God. Jesus is the faithful shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Now, from our standpoint, while these details grieve us, reading these words on this side of the cross, we can still rejoice to see our Savior who remains steadfast through the deepest trials out of love for the Father and love for his people. It's only Jesus' perfection and obedience to God that makes him a suitable sacrifice for us. So while we grieve the sorrows of our Savior, it's with great humility and thanks that we see the way Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father's plan and we model or try to make him a model for the way we submit to the Father's plan too. A few quick points of application for this paragraph. First, don't put your trust in men. Notice how even the most sincere Christians have failings. Jesus' closest followers, most dedicated, they all fell away. The same can be true today. There are many amazing men and women out there who have great ministries. Technology allows them to have an incredibly broad ministry, and I'm so thankful for the way that Lord uses so many people. But we do risk putting our heroes of the faith up on a pedestal and forgetting that they are human and sinful as well. The reality is many are going to let us down in this life. And the most painful ones are going to be the ones closest to us. Friends who let us down, spouses, kids, other family members, church members, mentors, mentees. Friends, remember that none of these people in your life are Jesus. Don't put the same expectations on them. Set your hopes on Jesus and be quick to forgive others. Second, don't be discouraged if it appears the world is, uh, quote, winning. God works out his will even through the acts of wicked men. Certainly the disciples in these moments thought all was lost. They could not imagine God using the actions of Judas 
and the chief priests and scribes uh, to work out his good plan, even though Jesus disclosed it to them. The Lord hasn't disclosed everything to us. I think in his wisdom, he has uh, hidden some things and revealed other things for us. But we can trust that he's in control, whether or not we're able to see the fruit of his kingdom grow. Third, rest knowing Christ's death and resurrection saves. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Christ's death makes us secure, and nothing can separate us from his love, as Paul says in Romans. So rest in Christ this week. At the heart of the gospel is the truth that we cannot save ourselves, that we have all failed Jesus in one way or another. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Perhaps you've been reminded this morning about your own shortcomings in looking at the disciples, of the ways that you've failed and continue to fail God currently. My friend, those are good things to remember. Uh, Not because God likes to bring us low, but because it's when we are low that we see accurately our need of him. Though we all fail, there is one who will never fail us, the man Jesus, the shepherd at the right hand of God who was struck down for his people but rose on the third day, defeating death and sin once and for all. Our hope is in him and is, in, and is secure because eternal life is based on his works and not ours. One commentator summed up Jesus' actions in this passage beautifully. Using Paul's connection to Christ as the second Adam, he said in the first garden, Adam said to God, not what you will, but what I will. And in doing so, he plunged humanity under the curse of sin. But in this garden, Jesus prayed, not what I will, but what you will, in order to raise humanity from death unto life. Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God for sinners, as only Jesus could. Therefore, we must trust in him and not ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we grieve at the sorrow that our Savior went through. We can only guess the terror that he faced in the garden that night. But we also see the strength to submit to your will in these things. So, Father, we pray that as we aspire to walk in a manner worthy to the calling that you have called us, that we, like Jesus, would devote our hearts to submitting to your will in all things, to seeking first the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do these things by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.